case file number 7.5, Viruses, Part 2, Going Pro, observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw, still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief, you, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one, the other one, Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Emir. Mm-hmm. When do you think the first Linux virus was discovered? Um, <laughs> mid-90s? Actually, you're a pretty much dead on. Oh, shit. It was 1996. Um, oh, okay. S-T-A-O-G. Stathog? I'm not sure. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, it was written in Assembler and attributed to the Vlad Group from Australia. Not where we think the Vlad Group is from, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, so they're also credited with the first Windows 95 virus. Oh, okay. It, um, it attempted to subvert root access using a handful of known vulnerabilities and had some basic persistence stuff mm-hmm. built into it. It was detected by a simple hex string using basic Linux admin tools. Oh, okay. So it's just essentially doing a a binary grep of files Mm -hmm. to find it. So detection was static string. It was just a matter of knowing that it was there and and whether or not to look for it. Right. But today we're following up on the ancient history of viruses and going to like the medieval history of viruses from about 1999 to about 2009 2010 yield viruses uh you know we keep talking about that whole like graffiti era to monetization mm-hmm. yeah and this actually maps that progression we're gonna end up running right into the beginning of the big ransomware era at the end of this okay we're not real because we did several episodes on ransomware but one of the first the the zeus net that delivered crypto locker mm-hmm. actually happened towards the end of this period but we're going to start off with some of the big email macro viruses that happened in around 1999 2000. okay including the very first virus I dealt with professionally. <laughs> nice. Uh, in March of 1999, the Melissa virus started going around. I think I'm really looking into that at some point. Yeah. So this is Windows 98, Windows 2000, where Office was A, common, and B, this was really where they had no macro protections mm-hmm. and 
all of the components of Office all ran the same macro stuff and the like the same macro language. And they would do that automatically with no protections because this was before people realized that was a really bad thing. Mm-hmm. This is also back in the day when like you had auto run USB. Yeah, this is about then. This is about that time. Actually, USBs would weren't super common back in 1999. I guess they had auto run CDs. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. auto run CDs. This mm-hmm. was still the era where to do a lot of tech support, moving files around stuff, you were using zip and jazz dicks. Mm. Oh, man, um, I remember those. It was the very end of that period, but like USB ports were not, they existed, but they weren't common. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. This is still the era where your keyboard and mouse would plug into a PS2 port. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you get the email. And it would run the macro automatically as soon as you opened the email up Mm. in Outlook uh, or Word. And now for me, for where I worked, this wasn't a problem because we ran Banyan Binds, which (laughs) I'll be lucky if much of our audience, uh, the dozens and dozens of loyal listeners, um, (laughs) even knows Banyan Binds, even though... The ideas that were around the Microsoft MMC and Active Directory Management actually were derived in some ways from Banyan Binds. Mm. Uh, So there's some roots, there's some bones to it, but Banyan was its own thing. And we didn't use Microsoft Office for email. We used it for Word documents, but we didn't use it for email. So we weren't a major infection point. Mm -hmm. But there was quite a lot of traffic related to to this type of virus. And in all cases, as soon as we had some understanding of it, we actually put rules into Sendmail to stop it from happening. Okay. Uh, Because in modern enterprises, they have specific mail bridgehead filtering. That wasn't a separate product. That was actually a thing you had to encode directly into your mail server in your mail (laughs) bridgehead back in the day. And, you know, this is the first time I had to mess with a SendMail config file. Mm-hmm. And that's why I run Postfix or QMail. Um, right, right. Friends don't let friends run SendMail unless you like really have to. Yeah, um, I had a project that used SendMail and it was very annoying. That's what happens when you let programmers design users or interfaces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so the initial vector was an infected Word document posted to Usenet in alt-sex. Um, <laughs> because Usenet was still kind of a thing at this point. Like mm-hmm. not just kind of a thing, but a fair thing at this point. Um, that we're remember we're only a couple of years, like three years after the first like widely widely used web browser and and, and web servers came out. Mm-hmm. Right. Not to say that there weren't websites that like the internet had happened by that point, but there was still a lot of people who used the internet for Usenet. Yeah. Um, and the account that they used to post it in, in alt sex was a hijacked AOL account. Oh, nice. Uh, which I thought was a, was a funny detail. Uh, <laughs> so it was tracked back to a guy named David L. Smith using the uh, um, WIDs. Um, what is that? Um, globally Unique Identifiers. That, okay. That's what GUID stands for. Mm. Um, I was like, I put it in here as GUID, and I was like, I'll remember the acronym. <laughs> so the, the um, Globally Unique Identifier was encoded in the metadata in the Word documents that he distributed. Mm, okay. So that's what let them track it back to him. Microsoft helped, and he was arrested on April 1st, 1999. 
which is hilarious, but like a month after it was released. Yeah. Less than a month after it was released. He pleaded guilty in December 1999 and was sentenced to 20 months in prison and was fined $5,000. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Prosecutors estimated he caused $80 million in damages. Hmm. Even uh, in vaunted cop math, that's a pretty interesting uh, ratio. Yeah. How did they arrive at the number? They just kind of... Well, it did knock like a lot of email servers and stuff off. Mm. I actually don't think it would be that hard in aggregate because when you start affecting, you know, thousands of people at a time, yeah, even for an hour, white collar professionals, an hour at a time when there are thousands and thousands and thousands of them, that adds up pretty quick. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, I mean, it was a one or two day event, but mm-hmm. it hit like everybody. Mm, yeah. It almost didn't matter that we had protections in place because most of the people that that used our network interacted with were offline or couldn't get their email for one reason or another, whether it's because their mail administrators had shut everything down or they had been borked. Right, right, yeah. So it's not the first email macro worm. The Happy 99 worm predated it by a couple of months. Like it released in in January '99, but it had nowhere near the distribution and effect. Mm-hmm. And that was followed by the "I Love You" virus, <laughs> which was created by Anil de Guzman, uh, aka L23, in Manila, and he was a student in University of Manila, and um, he had built it originally with a restriction where it would uh, where it should have been restricted only the Philippines. I didn't mm-hmm. get any details on that, but it might be like only Portuguese language or something like that. Okay. But he had originally res- tried to restrict it to only the Philippines, and then he removed that while he was screwing around with it, and it it got super out of hand super fast. <laughs> uh, he used that the the infamous double extension trick, mm-hmm. where it was like. I love you. Dot, I think it was dot JPEG dot VBS. Oh, okay. So it was actually a destructive um, virus. It deleted and, and hid documents and MP3 files. Mm. I think it deleted the MP3 files and documents. It would just hide on the on the disk. Maybe it was the other way around. Um, okay. And it would propagate by reading the victim's address book and then sending copies to all of their contacts. Nice. Um, L23 was not prosecuted because the Philippines didn't have a law against malware at the time. Oh. So they quickly passed in July uh, the E-Commerce Act of July 2000 mm. so that it would be illegal in the future. <laughs> right. If, if you're going to commit a crime, commit it before there's law. Exactly. And that might he might have been the last person to get <laughs> in on that train. Like we talked about it in the Internet's Before the Internet episode mm-hmm. earlier yeah. this season. The guys that uh, that hacked the the uh, UK's the Phononet, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, they broke the law, but they were prosecuted under a basic vandalism statute mm-hmm. because they right, didn't have yeah. a better. He he might have been the last person to get in on that train. <laughs> <laughs> so the last major email macro worm, and not to say that there weren't more email propagated viruses because we still see them today, but like right. these were big enough where these were the ones that made the news these were like the big security problems of their day mm-hmm. but the last email macro worm was the anacornicova virus in february 2001 okay i'm assuming given given the name it was linking to um pictures or something yes and it's kind of hard 
in today's world of pictures of everything online all the time mm-hmm. to kind of say how good a social engineering tactic this was at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because nowadays you'd be like, like, why would I, why would I click on this? Like, you can find this anywhere. But you're like, safe search off. And <laughs> let me just get an AI to generate it for me. <laughs> you're not wrong. Um, yeah. Uh, it was created by um, a Dutch student named Jan De, uh, Jan De Witt, aka On the Fly, hmm. and it was largely similar to the "I Love You" virus, based on what I could read. A lot of the problems in kind of doing some of this research is that the further you go back, back the less detailed and less easily found the research about the actual malware. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting. Uh, I I actually met from your last episode to do a little bit of of searching using sci-hub to see if i could get a better results than what i had previously mm, uh, yeah. from the academic side but i've been surprised at how poorly documented viruses are considering like the level of breakdown that we see nowadays whenever i'm looking at something a problem today right yeah i guess the most interesting part about the anacorna COVID virus is that when the fbi tracked down on the fly he was assisted by David L. Smith, the author of the I Love You, or sorry, of the um, Melissa virus. <laughs> was part of his probation. So I, I guess, um, I mean, especially at the time, I don't know that I would have felt honor among thieves or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Anyway. So the next step after this was the web worms, which started in 2001. And these were worms that propagated by exploiting vulnerabilities in web servers. Mm. Mm-hmm. The first one was SADMIND, which was, it was called SADMIND, but it meant S admin D, Solaris admin D, because it oh, okay. infected Solaris web, server, web servers initially, and then got expanded to IIS web server vulnerabilities as well. Mm, yeah, okay. And then shortly thereafter, Code Red worm hit, and then Code Red two right after that, and they mm. used they used the same vulnerabilities. It looks like it was different code. Hmm. Okay. They're just doing the same thing using right. their using their own code, but very similar vectors. Mm-hmm. And then Nim, Nimda, which is admin backwards, was found in <laughs> two thousand one, uh, and that was more sophisticated because it used a lot of different vectors. It used email. It propagated through open network shares. It had web droppers, um, and it, it expanded the exploit the kind of IIS vulnerabilities it exploited. Um, mm. There were a lot of directory traversal uh, vulnerabilities that they used, and it exploited. Um, backdoors left by other malware. Yeah, 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 that's interesting. It's interesting both because it was incorporated as kind of the first time, but also if you were going to incorporate it, that means that those exist. They exist mm-hmm. in a large, in, they exist widely enough that exploiting them it matters, that it's profitable enough, right? Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was found about two weeks after 9 11. Because mm. this is 2001 we're talking about. Mm. And it was initially speculated it was a follow-up to the 9-11 attacks by Al-Qaeda. Oh, really? This proved not to be the case, but it was the mm. speculation at the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, which, I again, I thought that was interesting. So yeah. we're going to talk about some stuff in the 2003-2004 range. And then we're going to jump back in, back in time just a hair. 
But these are my honorable mentions. Okay. Balls that that kind of happened that I thought were worth mentioning um, in the 2003-2004 range. Right. So 2003 was when we got the Slammer Worm mm-hmm. from our seminal inaugural episode, My Favorite Virus. <laughs> but there were a couple, there were three more things that I thought were interesting that happened in 2004 that I wanted to mention. So there was the My Doom email worm, uh, which had a similar operation to those email worms that we talked about before, although not nearly the uh, the level of distribution and impact. Mm -hmm. But the thing that made it notable is that in the payload, it set up a distributed denial of service attack of the uh, SCO Unix group, the Santa Cruz uh, Operation Unix group. Oh, okay. And like SCO is dead at this point this was back mm-hmm. when we were deep in the linux gnu commercial unix fight kerfuffle religious war okay and sco were iconoclasts in that war and they ruffled a bunch of feathers mm-hmm. and so like it's not crazy that somebody was targeting them <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's interesting that somebody made malware specifically to do a denial of service attack against a specific uh, endpoint. Right. Um, yeah. Hadn't really seen that noted before uh, any any real operation of that beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then there was the witty worm, which was it was in March t- two thousand four. And the interesting thing about it is it targeted uh, network and host intrusion detection systems by Internet Security Solutions, which was a, a, a then eventually bought by IBM and I think bought by Intel after that. Okay. Uh, I actually worked with ISS stuff a fair bit, but it, but it's interesting because it exploited a vulnerability in their detection engine. It mm. wasn't like an admin thing or anything. It was it wasn't. I'm looking for a service port. It was if a endpoint that was running their software saw this traffic, they would get exploited. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so like that was worth mentioning. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it used the traffic that caused it was UDP traffic. So I actually didn't know about this. Uh, like I, I remember only vaguely hearing about the about this virus. So it was interesting to see this because one of the things that I really liked about the Slammer virus, this also had, which is that it distributed itself via UDP and was able to exploit in a single packet. Mm, right, right. Because there weren't as many systems to affect infect and everything it wasn't nearly as impactful mm-hmm. it was caught a lot faster than slimer because slimer had already happened right. um, and there weren't as many systems so it wasn't the crippling network burden but in the day of infection they hit about twelve thousand systems and generated about 90 gigabits per second of traffic damn which is quite a lot in 2004 <laughs> yeah yeah 2004 i think we were still using fractional T1s for remote offices. So Mm. we're talking about literally a quarter megabit for like a regional office with a dozen people or or so. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Like frame relay, baby. (laughs) So 90 gigabits is quite a lot. And then the last honorable mention was, uh, the Kaber worm, uh, C-A-B-I-R. 
it was a proof of concept virus. So it wasn't like a real virus, meaning mm. it wasn't released in the wild. But the thing that made it very interesting is that it infected the Symbian OS of Nokia Model 8, Model 60 phones and it oh, propagated really? over Bluetooth. Ooh, yeah. that's interesting. <laughs> that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's neat. So now we go to back to our regularly scheduled program already in progress. Now we're going to get to the place where I think information security practice as like a serious concern really started, which were the SMB LSAS worms. Okay. Yeah. And these all exploited the Microsoft services in an era where firewalls were still not universal mm -hmm. and still in most networks, SMB to SMB communication is completely allowed. Yeah. So the first one was Blaster. The uh, vulnerability was originally identified in May 2003. Mm -hmm. And much like the Slammer Worm, it had been identified and patched significantly before the, the, the worm hit. Mm -hmm. So a proof of concept code was created by researchers in July, uh, July 17th, 2003. And then the worm was identified by defenders researchers on August 11th, 2003. Mm -hmm. the, the day after the proof of concept was identified, CERT advised the blocking of TCP port uh, one, uh, 135, which is one of the Microsoft SMB ports, and right, then yeah. added 139 and 445. Mm, okay. um, like the next week. <laughs> so they were like, no, really, you need to block this stuff. Right. And AV firms were were releasing major warnings and advising everyone to run Windows Update on August 11th mm -hmm. when it was first detected. By August 16th, there was a distributed denial of service attack attempted on windowsupdate.com. <laughs> That's great. Now, this wasn't very successful because that windowsupdate.com was only a redirect URL to windowsupdate.microsoft.com. Mm -hmm. But like they tried. <laughs> the other interesting thing about Blaster was that there was another worm that was released on the 16th of August. Like very shortly thereafter, called Wallachia. And okay. Wallachia used the same vulnerabilities to propagate, um, but did the tries to patch if it infects, it patches the vulnerability and then tries to uh, propagate. Okay. To the best of my ability to identify it, this is probably the last of the helper worms mm. that we talked about in the last ep or virus episode. Yeah. The last of the I'm using virus tactics, worm tactics to propagate, to fix the problems that bad worms might use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a concept, this is pretty much where that died. Mm -hmm. So in April 2004, we got the Sasser worm, which used another LSAS vulnerability. Same service, slightly different vulnerability. It wasn't the RPC, it was an LSAS vulnerability, but... Mm -hmm. For all intents and purposes, it's remote code execution on the SMB port, and that's what you really need to know. <laughs> Sometimes pairing these the specific vulnerabilities down isn't super important from a historical context. Mm -hmm. It impacted uh, flight operations for Delta Airlines, 
the AFP news agency and the British Coast Guard, among others. Those were ones specifically identified. And it was uh, authored by Sven Jaschan, uh, a German student uh, who was 18 the day the virus was, was released. And this is important because he was tried as a minor. Oh. Uh, and he was sentenced to 21 months on a suspended sentence. Okay. I think it's worth talking here a little bit about um, and unfortunately, I'm going a lot from memory on some of this because I, I reacted to a lot of this, but a lot of the detail of exactly how this stuff worked mm -hmm. um, wasn't well documented in the stuff that I could find. But I thought that I should talk about it um, because all of the really crazy um, command and control stuff came about because these things did command and control and second stage propagation stuff very simply. Right, and yeah. that's what led a lot to our ability to control them. Mm -hmm. uh, I might have I mentioned before in I believe it was Blaster. Blaster um, propagated by creating a web service on port four thousand four hundred forty four TCP. Mm -hmm. And so you'd have an infected system that would try and infect other things. And when it popped something, when it was able to do the remote code ex execution, that, that first stage dropper said, go and grab the rest of the virus from the system that infected you on port uh, 4,444, mm -hmm. which would make it pretty easy to find, right? Yeah. Except very few people knew how to use Nmap at that point in time. Mm, yeah, that was true. Uh, yeah. So I, I basically used Nmap to find it on the network. Mm -hmm. And then we found something out. And I, again, I mentioned this before. Uh, some folks were using a uh, third-party ad um, blocker mechanism mm. that worked like a proxy. Oh, okay. And that proxy operated on port 4,444. <laughs> so as a we whose programming was not very good at the time. Mm -hmm. I wrote some very bad Perl code that would run Nmap, take the result, and then do a banner grab of all of the results to see which one had the banner of the ad blocker, which was called <laughs> ad subtract. Oh, okay. And like I did that and it was not good code. I I, I shudder to think about it sometimes. <laughs> um my girlfriend at the time uh, was working on her graduate degree in, in computer science, and mm -hmm. I showed her the code. And I don't know if that's the reason she eventually left me, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But the thing was that even my janky code allowed us to clean up Blaster before there were commercial scanning tools available. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. by a matter of days, but <laughs> I still right. beat them. Yeah. <laughs> While you could figure some of this stuff out, and a lot of people did, I'm sure I'm quite certain I'm not the only one, um, the just download it and use the tools portion wasn't there. The support from the vendors to mm -hmm. solve your problems was like the vendors quickly realized, wait a minute, we can fill a niche here. Not, right. hey, we've got guys ready to work on this stuff, which is really yeah. the world we live in today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Some other stuff that we saw was command and control via IRC. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the Zotab worm in 2005, using a similar advisory, advisory MS 05-039. Um, I'm pretty sure about this one. Again, getting hard documentation to confirm my memories was not easy. Mm -hmm. um, but I do know for a fact that we caught 
an LSAS MS RPC related worm doing uh, IRC communications. We were playing whack-a-mole with it, but I would regularly catch the IRC communications. And that's how I, I would I would uh, send stuff over to our IR team. Oh, shit. <laughs> they weren't always using the same IRC channel, but the usernames they were using were always formulaic. It was like a three-letter country code, a delimiter, and then like a six or seven-digit number. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had the IDS tuned up to just capture all IRC traffic and just nab those because we did allow IRC on the network at the time, even though I was like, hey, if we kill this, oh, nice. it was a research institution. <laughs> so they ha- felt like they had less of a license to close things down. Mm-hmm. So clear text communications, fixed endpoints, uh, propagation using cert identifiable services on the system, mm. which A, are identifiable, and B, require admin privileges to run. Right. All of these things eventually got er, got killed. In fact, we're only a couple of years away. Actually, uh, the next thing we're going to talk about, which is the Stormworm, one of the big deals about it is that it was using sophisticated command and control, including as I understand it, the first like big implementation of what's known as fast flux DNS. Okay. What is it? Which is algorithmically generated DNS endpoints hmm. where they're checking new ones constantly. So oh, okay. locking a domain doesn't help you. Mm. And if you can generate them fast, and we and actually in one of the ransomware episodes, we talked about a command and control mechanism that was using a dynamic domain generation. Mm-hmm. But in that particular case, they were using the reference implementation that was predictable, and researchers would just register the domains ahead of time. Oh, I remember talking about it. Yeah. But this was the first like big success of something that was using that kind of of command and control mm-hmm. that was much harder to track down, wasn't tied to a single IP, wasn't tied to a single domain. Right, right. Yeah. But it's worth saying that just because techniques that made it difficult to do that, go back 15 years from now, mm-hmm. a little bit more than 15 years from now, doesn't mean that the stuff that we're seeing today doesn't have IOCs that don't do as much evasion. Right. Small numbers of domains, specific IPs, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, sometimes that's a matter of infrastructure and sophistication by the attacker. But the other thing is, Attackers only use as much sophistication. They only add as much stuff as they need to to keep going. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. A cycle that we see is like one approach is, works really, really well, and we'll continue hammering that even on diminishing returns until we like see the diminishing returns go down sharply. Right, and then they go into this incubation research mode and change tactics, which is why a lot of times we see this in cycles rather than kind of this continuous development Mm -hmm. model. But I mean, it's worth saying that there are some really sophisticated techniques around these things. I've seen some stuff uh, that I've mentioned before that involve using some, some cloud infrastructure and some very sophisticated ways of dynamically generating things that are Mm -hmm. harder to detect. Um, one thing that tends to be co- tended to be very common of dynamic ge- domain generation is that they would have a fixed length of string. Mm. Okay. 
So, and I, again, I talked about this at one point, I think I probably talked about it in the DNS episode of like identifying requests that are coming from the same source, but are all these specific length string of gobbledygook mm-hmm, and right. how that was awesome right up until content delivery networks were using kind of similar way, ways to generate URLs. Mm-hmm. And then it w- it became harder and harder to differentiate the content delivery networks that everybody was constantly using from right, yeah. potential malware. <laughs> <laughs> I never really solved that one, which is annoying. Um, anyway, so the Stormworm was really durable and was actually quite difficult to eradicate. We believe, based on the reading that I was able to do, that essentially the, the uh, defenders didn't win. Mm. The Stormworm authors just moved on to other botnets and and techniques. Oh, really? They kind of let this botnet more or less die on the vine. Interesting. Yeah. Probably because they were getting diminishing returns. They didn't give up on it. But this is another one where the blended threat thing was really a big deal. This was kind of the heyday of Adobe and Microsoft being kind of one and two in terms of constantly having like crazy vulnerabilities every year right yeah um so these botnets just kept hitting the microsoft and adobe vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. um there were new ones all the time so it's like (laughs) really hard to to keep a handle on the vectors the thing about this is i know we talked about in one of the season one episodes about dns changer operation ghost click okay uh which is actually episode one of season one (laughs) Uh, whereas my favorite virus was the very first episode in the preseason in mm-hmm. our in our in our kind of hey can we actually do this season <laughs> <laughs> right yeah uh, and that one there was a lot of law enforcement involvement to lock that down mm. and the thing is like the storm botnet really didn't get much help from law enforcement really okay yeah so like all of the defense was done by industry Mm -hmm. and i think another significant reason why it was hard to kill was because there's no support on the law enforcement side yeah yeah that that makes sense that three-legged stool i always talk about about you know community vendor industry Mm -hmm. the reason that that operation ghost click worked is because all three legs of the stool were there yeah yeah and here it was pretty much entirely community Mm. There was some vendor involvement, but not a ton. Like the security industry vendor side was involved with in, in parts of this, but it wasn't like Microsoft right. was involved. Yeah, and then yeah, there yeah. was basically no public support on it. And if you contrast the two cases, that made a big difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that makes total sense. In 2007, another important botnet happened called the Zeus botnet. Uh, this is the, okay. this is what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode where mm-hmm. uh, it was used to deliver crypto locker. Yeah, yeah, it was successful. It infected a lot of systems, but the exploit and the payload were decoupled. They used mm-hmm. the botnet to do multiple things. Right. And right. one of the other things they did besides delivering crypto locker was put on key loggers to steal banking information. Oh yeah. And they were they had like a whole sophisticated system of money mules and stuff to uh, drain people like accounts and uh, mm. move the money around and stuff. The Stormworm 
we know that they sold parts of use of the of, of the botnet and parts of it for various purposes and zeus mm. is absolutely a for-profit enterprise so like these are our first real hits of substantial at scale malware for money um right yeah yeah the next and we're down to the last two we're getting like right down there to 2009 um pig had two notable things about it the first one is that it turned off antivirus protections it killed antivirus services mm, okay um and the other thing that's interesting about it is that researchers took over the botnet that it established for about 10 days. Oh, really? Yeah. And this leads to what I think is a pretty interesting question. There was this discussion at the time, and I remember sitting in on conversations where people were, were, were having this discussion. Hey, if you're a researcher and you find a botnet and you figure out how it works, how the command and control works, and then you find a vulnerability in it or you find some way to... to do administrative interaction to it because some mm -hmm. of these cases it was not hey they have a vulnerability but it's like hey they really don't do authentication right yeah malware authors are a little bit notorious for not securing their own systems <laughs> i'm not saying they're all, they're all like that but there are some very notable cases where they haven't um mm -hmm. in very silly ways so the tor pig authors were able to get it to get their infrastructure back under control but mm. The discussion is, hey, if you can get in, do you use that to just do observation? Do you not tip your hand? Mm. Or do you actually do the intervention? Do you do what these folks did and take over the botnet and understand the scope of the infection? They retrieved login information for over 8,000 accounts at over 400 different institutions and over 1,500 different credit card numbers. Mm -hmm. So you know the scope of the attack. Maybe you could even foil the botnet. So mm. that was always the thing is like, do you intervene or do you not right. treat it as a zoo and don't tap on the glass? Mm. And this was like the big philosophical argument. This has become less of a problem nowadays because, or at least nobody's talking about it anymore. Maybe because nobody's really been able to take over a botnet like this right. um, in recent memory. but. I would argue in this situation, if you find yourself in this situation, if you could find it, how do you know somebody else can't find it? And then mm -hmm. it's a, are they going to shave the same restraint as you, or should you just use it when you got it? Mm, yeah. I'm not saying that there's a definitive answer to that, but the game theory is like, it's hard to say, don't use it uh, is, is absolutely the right answer. Yeah, I mean, I like I can understand the justification of like, okay, like sit there, monitor, see everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, like you said, like if you pop in and you see that scope of like you know how far it's gone, it's kind of hard to argue the um, like God, uh, just sit back and keep watching, like let it grow even more. Yeah. Um. So our last virus is the conficker worm. Hmm. This is another blended threat uses used uh, a lot of uh, different exploits, um, notably MS 08-067, and it used uh, dictionary attacks on admin passwords once it got once it infected a system. Okay, which is fun, but the big deal about this one, I mean, it's doing a lot of things that we talked about previously: blended threat, large propagation, infected a lot of institutions, 
did a lot, did some thievery. But the thing about it was that there was several iterated versions of it. They kept mm. releasing new versions. Within the year or so of operation, even less than like six months of operation, there were five versions. Really? Yes. Configure A, B, C, D, and E. All showing a change in in uh, prop updating propagation, some of them having self-defense mechanisms for persistence, most of them adding new um new vectors for infection. Mm -hmm. And actually, this is the this is probably the coolest part. Some of the later versions updated previous versions. Oh, really? Yeah. That was cool. So the thing was that was a little bit that, that that was interesting about it is that it worked really well, but it didn't really do anything. Okay. This is kind of a, hey, can we make a botnet that does stuff less than, hey, we want to, like the MyDoom virus, take down SCO.com. <laughs> the Wikipedia article said something about uh, the authors are believed to be Ukraine, have been Ukrainian citizens. Okay. And prior to what they, what do they call it? The late unpleasantness. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of the stuff that Russia has done to Ukraine to pick a fight and go to war crimes and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. We, we want to be on the side of Ukraine and I totally am. I, I see Putin and I, I see as a, a guy that just makes the world worse and has for a really long time. Yeah. But, but the thing is that both Georgia and Ukraine and some of the other republics, they had al almost as big a reputation for doing malfeasance on the internet mm -hmm. as Russia did in this era. Right, yeah. So, like, it's possible, but honestly, I couldn't, when I looked at other write-ups on Conficker, I couldn't find anybody else saying the same thing. Maybe I just missed that or something. Mm. But there were apparently four men arrested and one pleaded guilty, according to the Wikipedia article. But like, I don't know. I, I don't maybe, maybe I wasn't looking in the right place, but I couldn't find anything, anybody else talking about that. Huh. Um, again, one of my problems with doing this episode uh, was that there was less information available about several pieces of these things than I had expected when I kind of took on the, the writing this stuff up. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I just kind of suck at Google now. <laughs> Maybe I need to use Bing. Uh, anyway, the, world, so, the world's changing. Yeah. So that brings us to 2010. And I'm I'm not super sure I'm gonna do more on this kind of antivirus stuff because we talked a lot about the next major generation of malware already. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know that focusing on viruses going forward from here is the right thing to do. I'm going to look around and see if another episode kind of coalesces, but this right. might be the last one, at least for a while on viruses and antivirus. There's a lot of stuff to talk about, about like hackers and binary evasion techniques. Um, mm -hmm. but that might kind of be its own thing rather than me trying to crack. Well, my original intent was to come up with a chronology of updates in detection technology kind of the cat and mouse of the detection technology and the evasion technology but mm -hmm. i was pretty surprised that i couldn't find a lot of good information about that especially not with useful dates to really make a timeline of that so right. unless i can 
come up with some of that, I might just talk about some of the those specific technologies in future episodes rather than trying to continue the the timeline that I had originally hoped to be able to write on this subject when I started out doing these episodes. Sounds like a research paper. Yeah. Well, that'd be great if I were an academic, but <laughs> find out about new episodes at R slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.